I'm going to be, I want to read a scripture this morning from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, and then, oh man, here we go, Matthew 9, 9 to 13, and this is where Jesus calls Matthew, all right, and if you don't know who Matthew is, he's one of the, one of the first, one of the apostles, right, and at this point, as Jesus called him, he was a tax collector, okay, and uh, that is pretty much like, well, let's read it. Let's read it. Here we go. Matthew 9, 9 to 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, this is pretty much like, this is Matthew in his BC days. This is as he's met Christ, okay? He's sitting at this tax booth. He doesn't know who Jesus is yet. And if you know anything about the history and the actual context of the day and who tax collectors were, they're pretty much the scum of the earth. Like it was going to the traitors, the traitors of your people. It would be going to, like, Jacob Zuma's house in Kandla. Some of you are like, how can you say that? Well, it's already out in the law now. He's been convicted. Like, it's, they've done all the investigations over the years. It's like this guy has cheated us of billions that's the facts. So it's kind of like Jesus rocking over in Kandla and choosing Zuma. Some of you are going, oh, this is getting political now. Don't worry, I'm not getting political. I'm just saying that it's proven that he's, he's, been, he's stolen billions. He's, it's like going to the Guptas. I mean, these are guys we're not happy with. And if you're not not happy, then we should, you know, anyway, um, let's move along from there. So he says, follow me. Imagine that. And Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors. There were many of these callies around Matthew. Okay? And sinners. It says, behold, many tax collectors, many scholies, All right, scumbags. And sinners came. And were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. That means he was hanging out with them. He was like chilling at their house. And when the Pharisees saw this, so the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of the day, they saw this and they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like, why is he hanging out with these guys? Why is he having, he's not just, it's, not, it's okay to eat with people who don't have law, but he's saying like, why is he connecting with these people? Like, doesn't he know that these people are, have betrayed us as a nation? These tax collectors, they were in they're working with the Romans to collect taxes from us, and then they're extorting us. They're taking bribes from us, and then they're taking bribes from the Romans. These guys are like the go-betweeners who are just siphoning off everybody. They're dirty, rotten scoundrels. Why are you, why are you even hanging out with them? Like, it's, you know, why do you even enter their house? Don't you know that this is, this is frowned upon, and he shouldn't be doing this? And then Jesus looks at the, um, at the whole situation, and he hears what's going on. And he says in verse 12, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Those who are sick, they, they need a doctor. And then he says this interesting phrase, and I want to base what I'm teaching on this morning, is go and learn what this means. Now, I mean, what's interesting is he's talking to the most learned people in the whole of Israel. He's talking to the Pharisees. These guys know the Bible better than what I know, the, like Bible by a long way. By, I mean, you know, in terms of the Old Testament, they, they could quote it by like 13 already from Genesis to the last book in the, in the Old Testament. Like they, they can quote it. Off, offhand. He says, you guys, 
need to go and learn. You need to go back to the drawing boards. And you need to learn something. And he says, go and learn what this means. I, and he quotes an Old Testament prophet, and it's God speaking. He says, go and learn what, who God is. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to, and then he goes back into Jesus himself as, as a messenger from the Father saying, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. And that's what I wanted to just encourage us from this morning is that thing of if Jesus says to those guys, listen, you should go and learn what it says. Like the Lord's really been speaking to me about this. Like Brad, you need to go and learn what it means that I desire mercy. God desires mercy. And as the Lord began to speak to me about this, this and, and, and I said, okay, Lord, here I am. You know, teach me. I'm, I'm your student, you know. Like, let me learn what this means. God began to direct, well, actually what happened is when I read this, I was also reading through Genesis. And as I was reading through Genesis, God was just saying, listen, look, learn, open your eyes, open your ears, because I want to teach you. You need to learn you know, as the Pharisees, he would have been speaking to them, and their context would have been the Old Testament. They had no New Testament. They had no death of Jesus on the cross yet. They had the Old Testament. And he's saying, go and learn what I mean when I, when I desire mercy. Go and read. And he would have meant, go and learn. Go and look at who God is in the Old Testament. And so I was reading through Genesis and going, okay, Lord, I'm... And that, well, to be honest, as I read, God was just saying, pay attention. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I was like, okay, because I was just at Exodus. And Exodus, God reveals himself in Exodus chapter 6 to Moses at the burning bush going, was it, yeah, Exodus 6, yeah? Or was it Exodus 3? Exodus 3. He goes, Moses standing at the burning bush, take up your feet for you, the ground you're standing on his holy ground. And then God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He identifies himself. God identifies himself with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I'm like, okay. Yo, God, you're the God of I know that. I mean, I know that. You know, I've been around a while. But like, hey, yo, what have I just been reading the last month about Isaac, Abraham? And I'm like, God, you know, I'm not feeling too comfortable about this thing, you know, when I'm just, just straight off the, hot off the press of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's life. Now, I don't want to downplay. In fact, I, I, sh- I, I, I'm, I cannot downplay who they are because God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But when I go and you look a bit close into their lives, there's a couple of things that are a little bit disturbing and they're a little bit uncomfortable. You know, a guy called R.T. Kendall, a, a, a well-known Bible teacher in the world. I think he's, he's passed away now, is he? Yeah. Passed away one or two years ago, the late R.T. Kendall. He would say, in the Bible, there's a lot of things that make up a component called the yuck factor. They things when you look at them, you're like, oh, Maybe we'll just like <laughs> just avoid that one. Maybe we'll just avoid that one. You know, let's read. Oh, okay, let's go around that. There's a couple of things in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's eyes that are serious, like yuck factors. That when you look at them, you're like, man, that's not cool. Let's just focus on the good stuff, man. You know, like, and listen, there's there's a lot of good stuff. There is a lot of good stuff, but there are some things where we where we start to realize. Listen, these guys were not the perfect picture. In fact, as God called them, they were like reaching forward, like towards the Lord, seeking to, to, to follow his commands and, and walk in his ways. But the revelation of him was an unfolding revelation. 
And as that revelation unfolded, they, they, they groped forward in a sense. And even, even Paul, when he preaches to some unsaved guys in Acts chapter 17, he says that God has determined the times and the places in which you should live. Um, and then he says, so that somehow men might reach forward, grope, and reach forward to find God. God is at work in and among the unkindless. He's at work among the sinners, and he's at work even among us, as we see with a glass half, uh, no, I want to say glass half empty, but a, a, a dim glass, Paul says. Even as we see God, it's often a dim, oh look, we have the privilege of seeing Christ. I mean, we're, we're, we're as a generation of no other, we're in a time of such favor, unprecedented favor, that we've seen the face of God in the face of Christ. We are the most privileged like generation or, or, or like the, the 2,000 years since Christ. But even then, we're still looking forward. We're still reaching forward. But these guys didn't have that. that God, God revealed himself in stages and phases, and they followed him. And in that, we see this picture that if you just look at God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you can get a little bit discouraged. But if you look at the God behind them, that's the point. It's not so much to look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as it is to look at the God behind these guys and his determination to put in place a people who reflect his name in spite of their shortcomings. And that should evoke certain things within us. But when you look at Abraham, for example, the father of our faith, he starts off Genesis 12, God speaks to him and says, I have called you, I've set you apart, I've made you to a great nation. Every nation that blesses you will be blessed. Those who... who uh, who curse you will be cursed. I'll make you to great numbers, nation. Your numbers shall exceed that of the sand on the seashore. God gives him these great promises. Abraham says, great, but he's married to Sarah and she's got, got no kids. Like, okay, cool. Well, we've got no kids. When's this going to happen? And eventually it doesn't happen. His wife's going, listen, we need to make this happen. And he goes, it's going to happen. Eventually God, God says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. He's like, Sarah, God's going to give us a son. And eventually Sarah's going, listen, this is not going to happen. And so she says, sleep with my, with my, one of our servants. Oh, that's where we, the yuck factor, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, let's just ignore that one. And then he does, and uh, things go but pay. I mean, ends up becoming a, I mean, Ishmael ends up becoming a, a nation that opposes Israel down the line. It's crazy. Uh, but then, you know, God pitches up Genesis 15. God cuts a covenant with Abraham. Abraham lies as though dead, and God cuts a covenant with himself, you know, <laughs> while Abraham's like dead. It's like God going, Abraham, with, you know, I need to put you asleep for the covenant that I'm going to make, you know, because I want to make this covenant with you because I've chosen you, because I've purposed my mercy upon you. And then, we see that happening, we see, but after that, Genesis 18 again, we see this amazing picture even of, of, Gen, of, of Abraham. So on the good side as well, when God speaks to, to, to Abraham, says, listen, as a sign of my covenant that I've made it with you, I want to set you apart from all the other nations of the world. I want you to look different on the outside. So Abraham, yes, Lord, I'm listening to your servant, God. I want to circumcise, you need to circumcise yourself and all the men with you. Uh, yes, Lord, is there another God out there? <laughs> Somebody else, please speak to me. <laughs> God's like, no, he's like, yes, he obeys the Lord. So that's a good thing. Right? Abraham obeys the Lord. Gets all him and his son, well, he had no son, but him and his whole family and everything were circumcised, right? 
I mean, there was some good stuff. That's, that's, that's wild obedience. Abram takes his own son, so let's, on the positive, the good stuff, the stuff that he was actually, that's why he's a father of the faith. God says, take, eventually he has his own son, Isaac. He takes his, Lord says, take your son, Isaac, and sacrifice him. He's like, okay, God, and he takes his son up by faith, and God provides the ram and, 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 you know, the sacrificial lamb in his place of his son, a picture of Christ. Abram gets used mightily of the Lord to be this prophetic picture of what God is going to do with his own son thousands of years later. We all remember that, and that's awesome. But at the same time, when Abraham had left his father's house just before that, you know, in, in spite of his encounters with the Lord, when he's passing on his four to 600-kilometer journey from his father's place to the, the promised place, he lies about his wife, Sarah, twice to different kings. And when he lies about his wife, he wants to cover her identity up because he's, he's got fear he's over, over his faith. God actually, cover, God actually helps him out. Well, he, he gets exposed. He's like, oh, sorry, he confesses. At one point, actually, God breaks out against the king who's got his wife in amongst his own bunch of harem of wives. And the guy's like, listen, yeah, I need you. What's going on here? Like, something's wrong. And it turns out it's Abraham's wife. He's like, let this get, get out of here. It's like God is watching over Abraham even when Abraham's not watching over himself. God had chosen Abraham. And God was working in Abraham's life because he was working in Abraham's life. (laughs) See, God has mercy because he has mercy because he has mercy. No, hang on, wait, there's something wrong with the equation. Can we just like back that up and go, God has mercy because... Now, God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he had mercy upon Abraham. He had chosen Abraham, and that was that. And that should not put in us, as Paul says, well, does this mean we continue to sin because God... No, this means we actually go, what on earth, God? I can't believe it. And we walk in greater fear and greater honor and greater reverence and greater anticipation for what the Lord might have over our lives. And so when you look at Abraham, you see God just pitching up in his lifetime and time again. I think it's Genesis 18 or so. Abraham's busy. They hadn't had their son yet. He's sitting around a fire, like and three guys pitch up. I actually think it's God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, but the three people pitch up. And uh, he recognizes that these are, super, these are supernatural beings. And as, they, he, as they're passing through, he says, please, please stay here. Please hang out here. And so he makes a lacquer poiki for them and uh, a meal and has them sit down. And eventually, they're on their way to pass judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And as they're walking off, he walks with him. And you see this discussion happening between the, the tri- triune, the Lord, the, these angelic beings, these God, it's actually the Bible calls them the Lord, God, gods that speak to each other and they say, should we tell Abraham what we're about to do? They said, yes, let's tell him because we've chosen him. It's like we're going to tell him what we're about to do because we've chosen who he is. Go read it. And then they tell him, listen, we're about to, to destroy like Adam, uh, Sodom, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's like, oh, hang on, okay, whoa, next level. Like, could you restrain and refrain your, your judgment on that place for 50 believers? I said, uh, yeah, yeah, cool, we'll do it. He said, okay, well, you do it for f- if there's 45. 
And then at 40, Abraham's talking with God. I mean, can you believe this guy's talking with the Lord? 40, and he's, oh, Lord, I can't believe you're even listening to me right now. Will you do it? And eventually he gets down to, was it five or something? And they, or 10. And they weren't even 10. But the picture for me is just so awesome is that God like decides to interact with Abraham because he says, I've chosen him. Let's talk with him because we've chosen him. Friends, God, when he's chosen you, he wants to communicate with you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to actually come near to you. And that's even why he's made a way through his son, Jesus Christ. Because he wants to reconcile the world to himself. He's desiring to reconcile the sinners to himself. He desires mercy. He wants to recline at the table of sinners. He wants to recline at your table because he's merciful. Because he's good. Because he is love. Because that's his nature. He wants to sort out the, the problem of sin that separates us from God, that leads us to eternal punishment. He wants to remove it from us. But he pushes, he's pushing into our lives. And as you begin to look at the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you, again, if you look at Isaac's life, you become all too aware of the fact that he had his own failings. He fathers, follows in his father's footsteps with lying as well about his wife. And if you look at his own parenting, it's not so good because his two sons, um, Jacob and Esau, I mean, you know, it, it says Jacob was a, of quiet nature. He liked to be at home and making meals and stuff. Well, it says Esau, he did to be in the farm. He was an oak with the three war dogs on the back of his Toyota Bucky, like going hunting and bringing them back. He's four by four, you know, like two very different dudes. And it's very clear that Isaac, like, favored Esau. He, he actually, you know, in fact, the marriage, the parenting, they needed to go on a parenting course, seriously. Because actually, you know, when you got your wife saying, oops, Jacob. Your father's about to bless your older brother. He's always favored him. Get in there now. Put some extra skin in your arm. And, like, you, know, and you go get the blessing. This, their marriage is not in a good place. <laughs> they definitely need to go to the parenting course. I mean, there's, a, there's like clear, you know, this is the son. You're my favorite. He's not so favorite. This is not good. I mean... These are the yuck factors, you know what I mean? You want to kind of just like, uh, let's not, you know, Isaac was, he's a father, one of the fathers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We're like, God, what's going on here? See, it's, when we start to look at the men we're missing, we're missing the beauty, the magnificence of the God of mercy who chose Isaac. Come on. Are you with me? When you go through to, to Jacob, well, I mean, it's crazy, man. This guy ends up running away from his butt because he's stolen his birthright. Ducks. Well, well, the amazing thing is, in Genesis 28, Jacob's running out of fear because his brother's going to come after him with an AK or something like that. If he had had an AK-47, but with a panga or, you know, I don't know, spear or something, one of his bows and arrows. And on his way, Jacob's like running because of his deceit in Genesis 28. He puts his head on a rock to fall asleep. And he has a vision of angels ascending and descending the throne of God. And he gets up and he says, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. And he calls the place Bethel, 
God is, yeah, the house of God. This is, God is in, and then he says, Lord, God of my father, Abraham and Isaac, if, if this is you just rocked up and pitched up here with me, you've said you are, then, then I want to give a tenth of everything I own to you from now on. The guy's like, he's, he's still a deceitful oak. He's still running from his boot, like, and God pitches up. And in that moment, he already wants to give a tenth. He's already going, I mean, there's already, for those of you like anti the tithe, I mean, there's way before tithe was introduced in the law. He's going, I'm going to respond. I need to respond with something material. And he's one of the, along with Abraham, the initiators of the tenth. We've got guys who arguing, I don't, want, I don't believe in the tenth. I just want to give generously. Said, Can your generosity start at a tenth? Can your generosity start at 10% and move beyond that? Because then we don't have to bother about it. You just have to say, let it start there because God's in that number, man. He's in it. And start there. Anyway, that's another story. And so Jacob runs and then his life, like, isn't the picture perfect? Like life himself. I mean, he ends up going, falls in love with um, Rachel. His father-in-law deceives him as well. Ends up marrying Leah. He has to work another seven years. Well, he gets Rachel. But then he has to, he's not happy working his father's. No, his flock's increasing. You know, the Bible says God blesses his flocks. It's amazing. God even blessed his flocks. His stuff just increased and grew. Eventually, he's like, I've got to get out of here because my father's controlling, manipulating type of man. So then he decides, now he's got grandchildren and everything. He's like, I'm going, and I'm not going to tell my father-in-law because he is going to stop me from going. So I'm just going to go. So if there's any grandparents out there, how would you feel if your son, along with all your grandchildren, just your son-in-law, just heads out, you know, doesn't tell you about it and just runs away from you, not telling you where he's going and takes your grandchildren away. There's some grandparents who, you think that, that's not so good, right? <laughs> this is Jacob. And he hauls it out of there. And his father Laban yells about this like a few days later, like, where's Jacob gone? And all the family and relatives and my cousins, my little kids, my grandchildren, and like he's out here. And he runs after him. But what's amazing is Laban has a dream at night where God pitches up in the dream and says to him, Laban, when you go, because now he's pursuing Jacob. I mean pursuing. He's not like, you know, just cruising, like, hey, you didn't, I didn't say goodbye. I just want to give him hugs and kisses. He's like, I'm going to come and get fetch you. You're coming straight back home. And God says, you don't say anything good or bad. God pitches up in you. Don't say anything good or bad. At this point, Jacob's done nothing to deserve the Lord's mercy. God's fighting for him before he's even woken up as to who the Lord really is. Come on. And the interesting thing is when Laban pitches up, go read all of this in Genesis. When Laban pitches up, he actually does say some bad things. He says, listen, how can you take my grandchildren away from me? You didn't even say goodbye. And the Lord's told me to say anything bad about you. So, so clearly I think he was actually just toning it all down. He still told him some stuff, but he, <laughs> he didn't do anything bad. And then he releases him. But it's not over yet because as Jacob's heading back to the land that the Lord has promised his father, Abraham and Isaac, and told him he must go back to, as he's going back, he has in his boots Esau. He has his coming into town. In comes Genesis, just after chapter 30 or so, he has Esau's coming. Esau's not coming. Esau's coming with a bunch of guys. I think it says a 400 men or something. There's a couple of hundred men. And this is not going to be like, hey, but look at him in the neighborhood. He's going, yeah, it's time for some payback. 
And Isaac realizes he's, he's in trouble. And so what he does is he seeks God. Now this seems to be the first time in his life as the father, as the son of, of Abraham and an, well, you know, the grandfather Abraham and Isaac, this guy really seeks the Lord. And he calls on God's name in anguish. And at that point, it's when he, he sends his family, he says, you guys cross over there, get away. I'm going to meet with him, but God, unless you come through, I'm in trouble. And at this point, again, if you look at his life, why, why should God stand up for him? Why should God intervene? What has this oak done? I tell you what, he hasn't done much when you look at it in sums, in maths, pluses and minuses. He's like, he's owing the Lord a lot. God doesn't owe him nothing. But in prayer, as God pitches up, God rocks up, and, he, and, and Jacob recognizes that this is God. And he begins to wrestle. And he, say, he recognizes this moment that this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He recognizes, well, that this is a supernatural being that he's wrestling with, that he needs to hold on to, that he needs to, to change his life. And God touches the socket of his hip, dislocates his hip, and changes his name from Jacob to Israel. Israel meaning he who wrestles with God. But it's easy to go, you know, look at how he clearly wrestled with God, but if you don't see that he had done nothing to deserve God's mercy and you're missing the God behind him who's going, I have desired mercy. See, Jesus says, go learn what it says when, when, when it says, I have desired mercy. When God desires mercy, it's unstoppable. Unstoppable. See, God, in that moment, he wrestles. Hip gets out of, put out of joint. So, you know, there we go. God, the healing God actually put his hip out of joint for the rest of life. Sometimes God's not going to do that. He needed that limp. He needed to be reminded. Just like, yeah. Sometimes God's mercy to just can even be that, but anyway, that's another story. Eh? Um, God pitches up. God pitches up in that place and meets with him. And from there, what's also interesting is Jacob's life. Oh, his brother rocks up, and his brother actually meets him going, it's awesome to see you. It's like there's a shift. God fought for him. God fought for him. In Jacob's own life, he ends up having, you know, the, the 12 sons, which we won't go into all of them. I mean, he didn't do a fantastic job of even raising his sons. I mean, if you have forgotten a little bit later, they're the ones who threw Joseph in the well, right? That's <laughs> not very good parenting either. I mean... I mean, the best son was, was, it, was it Reuben? Because he said, hey, guys, rather than, like, kill him, sell him to the slaves. Make him a slave to the slave traders. I mean, we all go, well, well done to him. Clearly a bit of righteousness there. Well done, you know. <laughs> I mean, these days... And these are the 12 that are actually the birthing of a nation 
that we then have Israel, the, what is, becomes known as Israel, combination of those 12 tribes and all their people, and we've got Moses, you know, God prospering them under Pharaoh, and we've got them, God leading them out of Egypt, God saying to Moses, go back, go to Egypt and call my son out of Egypt. I'm going to bring him out. You not realize, you know, even, even these Israelites, they're living on a revelation of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they're groping forward, and it's, it's actually all about God going, I want you to see who I am. I want you to know who I am. Um, and, and so even when Moses calls on the Lord in Exodus chapter 34, and God says, I'm going to let my presence go before you. I'm going to, I'm going to show my presence to you right now, Moses. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord's presence passes in front of Moses. And it's, he says this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the, on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He's like also a God. He's also a God of justice. He's also a God who disciplines his children. But he reveals himself as this God, merciful, gracious, compassionate. And so guys, you know, I just, as the Lord's been teaching me, I, I just feel to pass on this, this charge in the Lord to, to learn what it means that God is merciful. You know, because if we will see and focus on the God of mercy more than we, we, we do of, of the people necessarily, friends, it, it stirs up in us a bunch of things. <laughs> the one is an immense and intense thankfulness. That God would have mercy on me. An immense gratitude, and it stirs up in us a worshipful heart. That Lord, how, oh God, oh God, that you would have that you would have mercy on me. See, when we're just working things out from a from a place of math sums and what I've done, what I haven't done, and our identities are based even in the Lord, based on all the good and the bad and the and and a, and a whole bunch of of, of sums, and you know what I mean when I'm saying that, of good weighing up versus bad. Friends, we fail to see the glory of God, the glory of His mercy, and that He's chosen you. This is what 1 Peter 2, 9 says, but you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, called out of darkness and into His marvelous light so that you can declare the excellencies, thanksgiving praise, declare the excellencies of Him who's called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not been shown mercy, but now you have been shown mercy. So the excellencies we declare is like, Lord, I was nowhere. I was nothing. And now I'm in your family. How did this even happen? I don't know because I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel. 
I don't get everything right. And I'm not, friends, I'm not excusing. Bad, God would not, I would not be preaching the gospel here today. God, God wants us to have great marriages. God wants us to have awesome parenting. God wants us to have purity. God wants us, there, He's holy and He says, be holy as I am holy. But friends, let us know this. We all need His mercy. Let us not be like the righteous. Jesus says, um, He says, there's two types of people praying when he's talking about prayer. He says the one is this righteous man or this man who goes before God. He says, oh God, I'm here in your presence. And you know, I, I am a righteous man in your presence praying here, Lord. And then at least I'm not like that guy over there. And outside, there's a sinner outside of the temple praying, saying, I'm not worthy to even go in there to pray. And God says, I'm going to listen to that act's prayer because he knows that he's not worthy to be in my presence. God's calling us to be mindful of his mercy, to learn what it means that he desires mercy, to learn that we're recipients of his mercy and his provision. You know what else it does? Not just evoke a thankfulness in us, but an expectation. It houses, you will see God's miraculous intervention in your life. You will. Why? Because he wills it. And how's this? Even as we are so often in the habit of sinning, God is in the habit of forgiving. Oh, thank you, Jesus. That was, that was very powerful. God is in the habit of forgiving. And praise God for that habit. Because it's by His mercy that we enter with confidence into the throne of His grace. In fact, we are able to only with confidence in Christ enter the throne of his mercy. Come on. It's through what Christ has done. And so what this means is God, friends, every one of us in this place, I, I just, I have, I have 100% conviction that if you haven't already seen the miraculous in your life in one way or another from today, Whatever that is that's preventing sin, it needs to be broken. Because, friends, God has desired to put mercy on us as his children. And like the testimony we saw today, maybe for two or three years you don't see some, a place getting offered to you. But God knows the timing. And when that timing comes, people are offering to paint your walls the color you want them. It's because God knows. He knows where and how he will take each and every one of us. Because he's a perfect heavenly father. And we must never doubt the total, the totality and purity of his mercy over us. That he's kind and loving and generous. Because, there we go. Because, Full stop. He's merciful because he's merciful because he's merciful. Yes, that's what it should do. It should cause us to want to laugh. It's like, what? Uh, this is not making, uh, really? And thankfulness begins to stir up that gratitude. You know, God will fight battles for you that when you didn't deserve those battles to be fought. God will go ahead of you and you don't, God, the angelic visions, the dreams, God will give them. But it's, it's again, not that we can continue sinning, it's so that we can 
It's so that we can be more in love with him. I want to end with this scripture. 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and 16. Paul writes in, uh, in this particular passage about himself and his own life. And you can just um, think about Paul's life for a moment. I was, you know, he, before coming to Christ, he, he was a bad man. He talks about himself in various parts of the New Testament in Acts he tells his testimony, and you get different angles of his testimony. But he is a guy who pulled mothers and fathers away from their children because they were Christians. He, he took sons and daughters away from their, from their parents. He, he imprisoned people for, because they believed in Christ. He even oversaw the death of some and participated in the killing of some and the torturing of some. He talks about that in Scripture. The Bible says, he says of himself, I used to hunt Christians like prey. They were like, you know, going hunting, looking for warthogs or something like that. That's, that's what I did with Christians. And now he comes to Christ. And he, it's now like, when you come to Christ, like, he makes all things new, right? He does. I mean, he cleanses you, he washes you. But Paul's got to go preaching to people about God. And in the, as he ministers, there might have been a mother or father said, my son will never come back because of you. And either he sits down and goes, sin is the last word on my life, or he gets up and he says, no, God has the last word on my life. Either he sits down and never preaches again because he's too embarrassed, too ashamed, too under judgment or condemnation, not just even from people, but from himself or from the day or from people, or he must find again himself in the mercy of God. And go, God chose. God intervened in my life. (laughs) I can't be a prisoner to other people's thoughts. I can't be a prisoner to every demonic power and principality over my life. I'm a prisoner to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who while I was a sinner seeking out the destruction of the very Jesus who's now come to me. He came to me while I was yet a sinner. Friends, we've got Romans. We've got the book of Romans. And we've got the, Paul known as the apostle of God's grace because of the mercy of God. The, this, the mercy of God came upon him. And the mercy of God is what helped through his life is what we're still looking at Christ at and marveling at him through reading of these scriptures that Paul wrote. Mercy had the last word. The God of mercy, friends. And Paul writes this. He says this, and this is, this is wonderful. In verse 15, he says, the saying, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So he's going, listen, the saying that I'm, there, there's a saying. Now, in other words, he's quoting a saying that was present in the church. He's quoting something that is being said regularly in their time. And he's saying, this saying that you guys have heard, that you're depending upon, that you're replaying, like in your mind, you're pressing this, you press the replay button on your CD player, and it's going on again and again in your circles and in your meetings. The saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to save the Zumas, to save the Guptas, to save the Abrahams, the Isaacs, the Jacobs, to save me. He says, of whom I am the foremost. This saying, friends, is trustworthy. And it's deserving of full acceptance. In other words, not like half. Not like, eh. Yeah. 
Maybe not in that case, you know. Maybe not in this one. It's like full, full acceptance is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Come on. And then he says, he unpacks his situation. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason. And he unpacks his own understanding as to why God showed him mercy. He says that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So he's saying, I was shown mercy so that those who would believe, that's you and me, and others who are still going to believe, it's so that in Paul's life, in this rebel, this anti-Jesus guy who God broke in, he said that in his life, we can see the perfect patience of the Lord revealed. And you can depend on that. Come on. Hello. Praise God. Praise, praise the Lord. See, Jesus says to them, go and learn what it means. Now, I feel like you might be here today and you're going, man, I don't deserve God's goodness. I don't deserve his glory. I don't deserve eternal life. I don't deserve to even have walked in this place. I've, I've, I've just dropped the ball again. I've again sinned yet again. I, I want to say to you again today, sin is very serious. Sin can disqualify us from God's presence. Sin separates us from God. Sin is like chocolate-covered vomit. It looks nice on the outside, and when you break through the crust, it's ugly as ever. It's ugly. It destroys families. It destroys lives. It will destroy your life, and it will lead you to an eternity outside of God's presence. But God, in His mercy, has given us Jesus Christ. God in his mercy has chosen that you would be in this place today, exposed to this message. God is calling for your hearts once again to come to his mercy, to run to his mercy, and to find it in this place. And if you're here and do not know Jesus Christ, you're uncertain of your salvation. You're not sure of if what had to happen if you had to die today. Then you're in the place where God can show mercy to you by your believing in his gift of life in his son, Jesus Christ, confessing your sin and receiving him. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to run to God's mercy this morning, to be cleansed of your sin and and to receive the adoption into his family, to be called his son or his daughter this morning. Just like that, just like that. You say, oh, how is it going to, just through confession. The Bible says that this is he who overcomes the devil, even he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Just that. Boom. In fact, the Bible says that's even why Abraham was made righteous because he believed. It wasn't because he just, it's because he believed in the gift of, of God, of righteousness. Amen? Amen? And then lastly for us as believers this morning, I'm going to just trust with you that we would, that we would enjoy the mercy of God like with humility and with fear and trembling, just receive. Receive his goodness. Receive again the affirmation of God because 
I'm, like, I'm enjoying pausing on that because. <laughs> because. Because that's who he is. Just open up. Just say, God, here I am. Lord, we have limited you. We have stopped believing that you really are for me and that you're really wanting to, to, to fight for me, fight the battles for me. Lord, we have stopped anticipating, even just hearing your voice. Lord, just lift that off of my life, God. I just want to have ears to hear. And even if you're in this place and you've been doing all the math sums and constantly feeling like you cannot come near, just come to God because. God, okay, God, I just, I just thank you. I just, what can I do? What can I do but just say, I mean, Peter could write 1 Peter 2, 9, I'm a chosen person, I'm a, because he knew, he was just a fisherman and Jesus called him. Same with you. You just, whatever you're doing, Jesus called you. Just come under that same thing today. Again. Amen.